Welcome to Building the Future, hosted by Kevin Horick. With millions of listeners a month, Building the Future has quickly become one of the fastest rising programs with a focus on interviewing startups, entrepreneurs, investors, CEOs, and more. The radio and TV show airs in 15 markets across the globe, including Silicon Valley. For full showtimes, past episodes, or to sponsor the show, please visit buildingthefutureshow.com. Welcome back to the show. Today we have Arjun Butnagar. He's the CEO of Cloaked. Arjun, welcome to the show. Thanks, Kevin. Really excited to be here. Yeah, I'm excited to have you on the show. I, I've actually, you guys were nice enough to let me play with an early version of, of Cloaked, and I've been using it for, for the last um, little while. But maybe before we get into all that, let's get to know you a little bit better and start off with where you grew up. Yeah, sure. I've uh, grown up most of my life in Massachusetts. Uh, okay, been very in- cool. Uh, public school much of my life and dabble a little bit in private school later later in my life. Okay, very cool. So you went to university. What did you take and why? Yeah, so I actually um, went to school for business, uh, surprisingly, even though I've been in computer science engineering my whole life. Um, so I went to school and studied business. I also did certification work in computer science. Um, so I attended both Babson College Engineering and did a lot of work at an Olin College, in, uh, Babson College and um, did a lot of work at Olin College Engineering. Very cool. So what got you passionate about business early on? So funny enough, I've always been in the engineering side and uh, coding, building. I think though, I've always taken a different approach to how to create things. From an early age, I was always excited to build something new, trying to add value to people's lives and see how I I could do something. And so I think I've never been a true businessman, but someone who's like, I want to create something on my own. But I did have some experience on business. I started my first experience with uh, selling when I was 11. Um, I started coding when I was 10. And when I was 11, I started my first software business. Yeah, I started coding when I was 10. And then I said, what if I could make some websites and apps for people? Well, not apps, I think today, back then they weren't really mobile apps, more just kind of computer apps. But I cold called businesses when I was 11 and saying, hey, did you need a website or any software I can make for you? And I would pretend I'm a lot older and I got clients that way. I remember when I was young, um, sitting on my chair, talking to a woman saying, hey, um, I I can help you with the website. She's like, that'd be amazing. We're discussing prices. And uh, she said, oh, I'm so sorry. My three-year-old's running around. And I told her, no worries. My three-year-old runs around all the time as well. And I was loving (laughs) sipping my, uh, we were sipping my Capri Sun. But I remember that was my first time uh, trying to start a business, sell, and use my software skills for good. Uh, but I think I always went, came back to, I wasn't even never in it for the money. I was always trying to see how can the work I do create value for others. I think that eventually translated to going to school for business later on in my career, um, not because I wanted to just do business, but I want to see how can I take my skills and add value because I spent my whole life in engineering. How does that translate into a bigger opportunity? Interesting. What got you coding so early? Well, uh, I've when I was really young, I was always fascinated by computers. Like I think when I was five, five well, I remember when I was three years old, I used to launch our old HP Compact to play uh, a video game. I couldn't, I didn't know how to type, so my mom used to type the uh, the website. 
I used to play games. I got a little older. I used to take apart computers and figure out how they work. And then when I hit turn 10, I got introduced to HTML and that kind of changed my entire worldview. I with four, I spent four hours learning. I opened up a notebook, learned HTML from reading some random websites. And I had in four hours got my first website live. And I think I got the bug in me then of just wanting to create, 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 because it was cheap, didn't cost a lot of money to do to get started. And I could do it from my basic computer at home. And I think the ease of access is what made it possible. And I just kind of snowballed from there. It's interesting because I basically have such a similar story. Like I got introduced to HTML when I was 12 in like computer class in like school, right? And been doing it basically ever since. So I totally, that's cool, man. That's that's awesome. I appreciate it. Same, same exact story. I, re I remember my first website going live. was like, this is it's such a cool feeling typing in a website address and just seeing it uh, firsthand. 100%. Totally. I still like that, actually. <laughs> oh, I um, I do a lot of uh, work now as well for nonprofit. So I actually was, uh, remember, showing a group of kids um, in a remote village. They had one computer and they didn't have access to the Internet. So I said, you don't need the Internet to make a website. So I fired up Notepad and made a website for them in front of them. And they were just shocked. And I said, yeah, this is this is what it means to code. That's amazing. So walk us through your career, maybe some highlights along the way um, up until what you're doing today, because you're doing you're still doing a ton of stuff. Oh, yeah, it's uh, doing a ton of stuff now. I think talking through my career is quite a crazy um, story. So I'll give some some snapshots just to give an idea. Um, so I got my first job when I was uh, 11, 12. So be beyond the company I was trying to do or make websites, I got a job at a company where I was uh, fixing computers. And okay. from there, I actually made, um, I, I was fixing computers for about $25 a computer. And then when uh, one day I heard an opportunity where the CEO was saying, hey, I we we're having these issues with our clients. They weren't coordinating well. They didn't know how to use their software effectively. And I, I remember overhearing the conversation. So I said to them, well, what if you actually could use a social network? This is back in 06, or I remember how 06, 07, and Facebook wasn't really that big, but I said, there's this thing called Facebook. You could make your own social network. And like, oh, that sounds really complicated. We're on the bandwidth. And I said, oh, well, what if I uh, did that for you? And I had no experience building a social network or even PHP or um, working with full databases, but I just said yes. And I, I, I'm like, I can do it. And then they said, okay, well, why don't you give it a shot? And within the first couple of months, I had a site live. And within later that year, they actually deployed that to client sites and got a $3 million grant or $2 million grant based on the work I did. Um, and it was, and all I did was really built a custom version of Facebook and helped integrate their software into it. And I think that's what started kind of propelling my career of building full scale applications, like deploying and scaling. So from there, I eventually worked um, on some online programming groups as one of the part of the early teams that ported Siri to the iPhone 4. Um, oh, wow. That was one of my, it made me briefly famous on the internet when I was young um, and then worked a lot of jobs as an engineer from that point on while I was still in school. And uh, one of my most uh, fun experiences I had was that I worked in the MIT Media Lab um, in the Step Arcade where we built a tool called Star Logo Nova, which was uh, akin to Scratch where you could actually provide tools to help uh, professors, students learn programming. 
And I, I kind of found my way in there from an intern uh, to being one of the lead engineers. And that was a surreal experience. I think that really brought a lot of my confidence in leading teams, leading engineers, um, and building a product to life. And so from the experience there, I got um, some, I got a couple more jobs after that. But uh, in between, I sold my first, I started, started my first startup um, as I entered into college. And that, that gave me a whole experience of trying to start something, um, trying to build it out, scale it. Um, initially, I learned, I made the hard mistake of building it, building so many features and not realizing what people want. And it utterly failed. I took a I took a break next year, realized that, well, what if we actually simplified the product, focus on the core value? And from that point on, the product uh, exploded. We went, uh, it was growing really rapidly. I don't know how to make money. We eventually pivoted to B2B and then eventually we were acquired. So I had the experience of starting, scaling, and acquired. Um, and then from that perspective, I wanted to start my next startup. Uh, and my first startup was actually with my brother. So we always joke from Legos to startups. My brothers and I have been working together our whole lives. Awesome. Um, I, I did my first startup, did my second startup, which went decently well, but then that failed. So I experienced having some success, some failure, took a break and became a venture capitalist. So I helped close uh, and uh, start investing from a $20 million fund in Boston. Mm -hmm. um, we were early stage pre-seed making, writing checks into right from the very beginning before people even had a product. Um, so it was a great experience. And then I had the big aha moment for Cloaked and jumped into Cloaked. So along the journey, I've had a lot of different jobs, worked with a lot of different companies, either as an engineer, working as uh, from a product chief product officer, helping in operations. I've worn a lot of different hats. Um, I've led full design teams. So I've always loved trying to pick up knowledge as I could. So I've been a designer, engineer, um, worked in operations, generally whatever I can to kind of add value. Um, and then the only other fun thing that people might enjoy is that when I was younger, I also dabbled, uh, especially because you were in the design world, I did 3D printing and 3D design. Yeah. So I helped design a prosthetic hand for a three-year-old child when I was 17. And That's that awesome. was an experience. Yeah, I appreciate it. It's what really shaped my kind of my whole view on the rest of my life that when I made that product, I made that, I made that product, when I made the prosthetic hand, I realized that it made a real difference in someone's life. Totally. And I knew from that point forward that everything I wanted to do, it should make a difference. I'm not trying to go make a quick cash grab or trying to make some fans, make some exit to make some, uh, make some earnings and just have a nice life from that perspective. I always wanted to do something that added value. And I think that cemented it if when I saw it in his head, like him actually using it, that this is something that would change his life forever. And that's me in a nutshell. No, that's, that's interesting. It just, the more and more you talk, like we have, a pretty kind of similar story with some things, but but I'm curious to dive into Cloaked. How did you come up with the idea and what exactly is it? Yeah, so Cloaked, I'll start with what it is and turn how we came up with it. Um, so Cloaked is a consumer privacy uh, platform app that puts you in control of your identity and your data. And what it really boils down to is that we have no control over how we put ourselves out there, how people interact with us and our information. People like to exploit us, use us. And my goal is to really put you in control of all of that. What we're starting off with is a password manager-like experience that not just saves your information, but creates unlimited identities wherever you go. An identity can be an email, phone number, and now soon a credit card unique to Amazon. An email, phone number unique to Uber. Uh, a phone number unique to a cute guy at the bar 
or an email phone number for every realtor you're talking to, or maybe a CVS coupon rewards. The idea is that never giving your information everywhere you go without breaking that connection. So what we managed to do is actually make sure that text calls, emails, and soon transactions route to your real phone number, real email, and even your real, real credit card without you having to change your behavior. So that's a lot what we're doing. I can talk about more and more about it, but it's interesting how it all started was because back in 2020, I was curious about my own data and how could okay. my data help me? Yeah, so I, um, what I did was I bought a Mac mini and I'd put it in my apartment and I decided to write integrations into everything about myself from basic stuff like my Google calendar, my Facebook data to more complex things. I hacked iMessage. I got my workout data, my GPS data, my healthcare data, eating data, financial data, everything about me I put in this box. And very quick, I also have back from machine learning, so I wrote some really basic models to analyze my life. And so it started telling me things. It said, hey, you missed your workout yesterday, do 15 push-ups between these two meetings. Based on my spending habits, it said, hey, let's cut back on the uh, alcohol and Chinese food this week. And uh, I was like, oh, okay. And then it hit me in the face one day, which is when I put my phone down at lunch with somebody. At the end of lunch, I picked up my phone and realized my really crude AI had a full conversation with my then girlfriend. It said, I love you, sent her memes, and it went back and forth. And the conversation was over by the time I picked up my phone. So it was at that moment, it hit me. I was like, wow, what just happened? I was just staring at this thing. But I realized that one, I don't own any of my own data. And two, even as someone like myself who loves technology, I would never trust Facebook, Amazon, and Google to make something like this. And so I said, I want to solve the privacy problem, give people more control of their lives and make their lives better. Interesting. No, I, that's what really fascinated me about the product originally, right? Is you're right. Like traditionally, the only thing that I've seen, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, that's done this is basically a, like Apple Pay is it gives like a unique ID to that transaction. But outside of literally paying for stuff, you can't really do this. Or there's like maybe kind of one thing that does one thing in one vertical. Cloak's the first app that I've seen that it kind of does it everywhere across so many different information sharing sites and, you know, in-person online. Is that fair to say? I, that's absolutely the way we're thinking about it. I think it comes down to people think of privacy as a nebulous concept or this complicated technical thing in individual pieces of software, individual verticals, but it has to be an experience that's convenient easy and can still promote privacy. I think that has to be an all-in-one solution. So that's what we thought of from a cloak perspective is that there's just one thing between you and everybody else and you're in control of that. We're that layer in between and you have a say in how all that stuff works. Very cool. So, but how did you make, because obviously the app that you built could be a yeah. product on its own and you could probably sell that to a ton of people would be interested in that itself. So how did you make the transition from that to actually deciding to come up with the first version of Cloaked and how has it evolved over time? Yeah, that's a great question from that. Uh, from, from my view, it's, that's how ideation begins. I consider that the, we call it data box was the original name okay. um, as my, my way of thinking, exploring in the space. I could absolutely go and sell and work on that, but I think that's 
a that's a vision and a future I'd like, but that's not possible to go and or even extend to go work on right away because to enable a future like that, you have to actually solve the bigger problem of privacy and really even the underlying question of control first. So as I was thinking about this, I said, well, I want this box experience, but there's so many hurdles and trust issues that would require to make this possible. How would you solve these trust issues? And I thought about, well, what if we changed businesses? We changed the way they store data, they interact with customers. But I was like, well, that's, that's gonna take forever. Trying to change every business one at a time is not gonna go so well. And some of our competition has done that. They tried to work on securing businesses' databases or try to rethink how they're interfacing with data, but they don't do so well. And that's a forever problem. But if you start with consumers, that would be a much better way, but I didn't know how to start with it. Um, I remember I was running, uh, I was on a run that summer and it hit me as like, I was so frustrated. I was like, I wanna figure this problem out, but I don't know how to start. And I was like, what if I could start with consumers? And then it hit me, I was like, well, I can. And it came up with me, I was like, well, how could I do this? And I first realized, well, do people care about this problem? I found out, yeah, 79% of America is upset to outright angry that data is collected, sold and misused. When I'm doing the research, the problem is that there's nothing they can do about it besides finding it creepy. If you can delete an app, but half the time anyway, they're aggregating about you anyway without you realizing it. But that's also not a good solution, just deleting apps. And so I was like, well, what do people actually want? What I realized is people like the idea of feeling known, not surveilled. They like the customization, they like the personalization, but they don't want to feel compromised. So I said, okay, well then why is the industry, what are they doing wrong? And it led me to this, this concept. I was like, well, if you look at security and privacy as words, people mix these two up all over the place. So I broke it up into three distinct layers. I said the outermost layer is what I define as security. Encryption, fraud, fingerprinting. What is my overall vector of attack? The second layer I defined is privacy. Where does my data live? Who has access to it? What does it look like? But there's an innermost layer. That's what led me to the starting of Cloaked is this layer that no one talks about. And it's layer I call comfort. And that's where we're starting. And comfort means it's that point where everybody understands the problem. Because privacy is so confusing. It's not a bunch of toggles on Twitter or settings you turn off in Google. Like it's a confusing word that people don't know what it could actually mean as a solution. So I said, start with the comfort part. And it's where everybody understands it. And it starts with that singular moment when you're asked for your name, email, phone number, credit card, address, everybody gets it. Whether you're VP of engineering or my own mother, everybody kind of gets that problem. So I started there and we want to grow into everything about your data, putting control of all of it, but starting with the simplest part where people can actually get the problem. And it starts with you sharing your number with somebody. If you ask for my number today, I don't know how comfortable I would be giving my actual number, but I could give you a cloak number. Now that's a personal number between just us two. And you can text call like normal, but it's now our personal relationship. And so Cloak creates those identities for every single relationship. And so that's my whole mental thinking of how I jumped from the box to a solution of how we could get started. Interesting. So say in that scenario where you give me a number, do I, is there any way for me to know that it's like a Cloak number and not just a regular number? 
So no, it works like a regular number. There's no difference for you to call or text. If I give it to you, you also don't even need the app. So if I give it to you, it just, it just looks like a regular number. Okay. And that's the beauty. The beauty if we think about cloaking is that you should be keeping the experience the same. I'll give you an email address. It's a regular email address. You can email it uh, and I can respond to it. You can CC, BCC. My, my real email will never be exposed, but the experience is identical to how it is today. You can interact with Cloak directly from your native Gmail. You don't even have to use our app, but that's the way we're thinking about that experience. Got it. Okay. So can you maybe give us some other examples of how people can actually use the app? Because you quickly mentioned it, but I, I think I want to dive a little bit deeper into that. Yeah. So we've had customers use Cloak for a lot of different things. It's been exciting to get feedback from users telling us that Cloaking has been an exciting experience as we've been going and going, going from alpha to beta and as we get out of beta um, and seeing how this even evolves further, it's exciting to see. But from customer side, we've had people use Cloaked. Um, an obvious case that comes in all the time is purchases. Um, people right. want, don't want to put information online when they're making purchases, not even on just like websites that are one-off, even trusted websites, people just don't feel comfortable giving their information. Um, so we've seen Cloaked a big aspect from their purchasing behavior. We had people actually never, who had never bought on Facebook, Instagram before, um, use Cloaked and they felt comfortable actually buying, um, buying from these websites, uh, not just um, like these random websites, but even well-known. But then it comes into all sorts of things. We had people open up bank accounts with Cloaked. People have actually gone ahead and traveled to different countries, done immigration. One user planned her entire wedding on Cloaked. She gave every single vendor wow. a unique email, phone number. So not just the idea of privacy becomes control organizing these different vendors giving that information we've had people use it for dating was an interesting case it seems really interesting for uh women it makes a lot of sense we've had men actually use it from their perspective um from dating everyday uses when you're going out giving information for networking um going for rewards a rewards another big piece when you're standing from cbs they ask for a number giving a cloak number just for cbs or starbucks um, and then just everyday account behavior when you're browsing online, trying apps, signups, we see Cloaked used all over the place. We've built Cloaked as a browser extension, web app, and a mobile app, which makes it really easy for users that whenever you see that email field, whether it's a newsletter or an account or somebody asks for your phone number when you're signing up for um, your internet service provider like Comcast or Verizon, we see people give Cloaked numbers and these experiences that it makes us that they can give a number that works, they can call them, but because it's right when they're browsing, Cloak fills in right then and there. They don't have to go think about switching into a different app, opening a new tab, or trying to go to the website. Cloak fills it in right then and there, so it makes it a lot easier. And so we've seen from a user that when, as long as Cloak, uh, there's no bugs or issues that day, which we're all resolving, getting a lot better about, but we've seen users 100% of the time choose to give Cloak information rather than not, as long as there's no kinks or issues along the way. But that's been the exciting part. It's not about when to use Cloaked. It's about that people want to use Cloaked as much as they possibly can. That makes a lot of sense. So I'm, I'm curious, because you guys are still a bit early, and obviously secure, you probably get the security question a ton. And, yeah. and then the follow-up to that is like, because you're early, like, are people worried that like if this doesn't work out, right? So like, how have you kind of managed all of those? Cause they're all kind of related or does it not really matter? 
So absolutely does matter. Um, I think they're all related questions. So I'll try to go through one by one. But the uh, interesting part is security was the most uh, fundamental what we do. Uh, from the first piece of code I wrote about Cloak was security. It was not um, the phone number, email stuff. The very first code is around security. Um, even architecture, the way we set up Cloaked. What we've done from the very beginning was that when you make your account a Cloak, just like you have right now, well, when you sign up, we actually spin up a brand new database for every single user. And we're separating okay. out user data and storing that information there. So it teases some of our vision where we want people to be in control of that data. And our system doesn't actually care where the data lives. It could be online, um, host in the cloud. One day it could be even in your own home. But the idea is that you're in control of your data and we separate that from the beginning, pretty control of that. So that's been, and making sure that information encrypted in transit, encrypted rest, and making sure that you have the keys to your information has been what we've always been focused on. We're still working through as we get out of beta to zero knowledge our system throughout. We're not fully zero knowledge everywhere, but that's something that we want to make sure is possible, which gives us that even internal cloaked employees can't see anything. Um, right now in Gmail, for example, anyone and the Gmail admin team could see anybody's email. We want to work towards that, even our perspective, that everything is a zero knowledge architecture. But it's paramount to what we do around security. But one of the questions we always get as well is that, what about um, uh, how can I trust Cloak around these perspectives? One, we're also working on white paper. I know it's big and it's fundamental what we do. We're a company trying to build around trust. It's what we're all about. But I think from that perspective, it's it's the way we think about our business that you we want to offer a product that you ultimately pay for. This is not a free product that we're going to secretly sell your data because that's that can't be what we do. It's all putting controls. Right. <laughs> this is going to be a paid product. People worried that, oh, how's it free? Are you secretly selling our data? It's like, well, no, this is why we have VC fund funding. So that way we can get we can work on the features, get, get the kinks out so that we can go to GA and start charging it. So that's why it's free for now as we get into beta, but it's going to be a paid part as we get out there. And I think um, just the longevity of Cloaked, I think that's why we've, we're backed by some of the biggest names in the industry, uh, really supporting what we're doing. And I think that's what gives us a really strong shot at making Cloaked a reality. I think ultimately we we think that in this space of privacy, control, identity, there's going to be a big player one day. Um, there's a lot of players who are kind of all over the place. I think we've got a really strong offering and that's backed by the fact that we've got the biggest name investors supporting what we're doing. I think that's what gives us a really strong shot. But I think we're knowing that this space is going to evolve. And if it's not cloaked, somebody will succeed in the space. But I think we're, we're really poised and equipped to make a big dent in this. Very cool. So I, I want to cover like the in-person, like we're at a networking event or something and we just meet and like I give, is it weird or what's your experience where if I'm generating a phone number using the app to give to somebody, like, have you had that experience or, or that's, is that been a hurdle or, or what's your thoughts around that? Yeah. So we've had, I, I give cloak numbers every day. We've had users. I remember one funny story before we even had our mobile app. Um, one user, she's standing in front of um, a, in a grocery store, and the lady asked for the information. And she launched our crude website and was zooming in and generating a phone number. And she said, "Wait, well, let me give you a phone number." Now we've made the experience a lot faster and smoother, especially with our latest mobile app update. But it's not been a huge issue from a lot of users to say, "Hey." I'm giving cloak number. This is an initial hurdle to do the first time or second time, but we know the, the magic number of like four, when you start using cloaked both online and in person, 
towards four accounts, it starts to become a bit more natural. People's like, this makes sense to me. Um, so that's where we kind of push towards it. And you start using Cloaked a few times online and you do it once in person, the, the mental model clicks, uh, the way you do it, how you share. And now some people are uncomfortable saying, hey, here's my number. Some people give them their information first. So our app does both. So you can, someone can give you the real number, you input that in the Cloaked and then Cloaked then maps that to a Cloaked number and then you can reach them via Cloaked only. You don't have to give your actual number then. Ah, even better. <laughs> Very cool. So I'm curious, and you don't have to give anything away, but how do you decide which services to add or because of the nature of just like giving them an email or phone number, people can basically add whatever service they want. Is that correct? Yeah, you can use Cloaked. Uh, we we have not integrated with any of the businesses that you can provide Cloaked information for because we know that the moment we try to go to the integration route, yeah. It's just slow everything down. So we've done a lot of work um, for even making sure our phone numbers can work on websites, make sure email addresses get approved. Funny enough, Apple's new email functionality of yep. copied or not copied, but they've came to the same answer I came to a year and a half ago. If you look at a cloaked email, it's um, if you make a regular cloaked email, it's three random words. Um, and that's because that makes uh, a lot of websites okay with it. But Apple used to generate a bunch of random numbers and letters right. and they skip walk all the time. And so now they cop they do the same thing. They copied it. They also do three random words. So I think it's that we're made sure that people can really accept cloaked. And one thing that's really important to what we do is we're not trying to make fake or burner accounts. It's meant to be your real account of the website. So if they email you, we want to make sure that email does come to the actual person. It's just making sure that the their information is not shared in the process. Right. So you covered this quickly, but so in that email example, yeah. if I have a cloaked email and I give it to, I don't know, the grocery store or whatever, and they email me, it goes to my regular like Gmail account or whatever email I, account I have, correct? Like I don't have a separate cloaked email app or, is, correct? So you choose, you can go right, you can choose, it goes right to your Gmail. That's a lot of people's choices. You just go right to your Gmail. Some people like to selectively, well, we've now seen the default behavior is that by default, people like to have emails go to their cloaked inbox. And then for important things like um, hotel bookings, bank accounts, uh, major purchases, insurance, they choose for those to go to their Gmail. Ah, so okay. we give people that choice about, do you want to live in cloaked or live in your Gmail? Either way, when you reply or respond or connect, your information still isn't, is never exposed. Got it. And it's the same with phone then, right? Exact same, same with phone. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm curious how, as you mentioned credit card, how are you going to do that? Is it similar to kind of like how Apple does it? Or do you have your own kind of take on that or, or walk us through that? Yeah, I have a lot of stuff uh, coming up uh, from my sleeve. I can give a little preview is that okay. it's a little different than the Apple approach, but it's the same cloaked model is okay. that we want to make it so that for everywhere you have to enter or give your credit card number, we can make a unique card number for that website or that merchant alone. Yeah, and it's locked, it's locked to that merchant. You can set spending controls. It's merchant locked. You can be in control of that information. Oh, wow. And your actual credit card doesn't actually get exposed. But we want to have the same idea of choice where that transaction is like a proper card or is it route to your own uh, regular real credit card? And so we've we've got some stuff coming in the works. We've got some major partnerships 
with some big names and a lot of opportunities that make this possible. Um, so that's why it's been taking some time because that takes a lot of a lot of work to get a lot of people coordinated to make this possible. Sure. Yeah. Especially dealing anything banking is not quick. Oh, absolutely. But I'm excited. And it shouldn't be. <laughs> exactly. A lot of due diligence. Um, but it's been exciting. A lot of um, big names are supportive of what we're trying to do and making not just a cloak card possible, but the idea that cloaking as a concept, um, people are behind. Because I think that gives a lot more control and say to a user who ultimately then for financial side spends more when they're when they feel trust or when totally. they interact more with an app or website when they feel that that business respects them, their privacy, it respects their choice. No, that that makes a lot of sense. So I'm I'm curious because you come from done startups in the past, you've obviously doing in you're an investor currently what advice do you give to people starting out because and you can correct me if i'm wrong here is you guys at you know rally cry ventures invest very early and so what advice do you give to people when they're when they're starting and maybe looking for money because it, it seems like we're in this kind of doom and gloom right now and I don't know if that's a hundred percent true. So just kind of like, what are your thoughts and what advice do you give to people right now with kind of what's going on right now in the industry? Yeah. So one at the early stages, there's a lot of investment has definitely become a lot more difficult to get. I think the later stages become a, it's a little easier for some bigger name companies. The early stages have been a lot harder, but I think there's still a lot of people who want to invest in early stage startups. So the advice I always give, both from the non the non doom and gloom times and even more important now is showing showing the value of what you're trying to do. When you're when you're writing a first check, we want to see is the you're often betting on the entrepreneur. Right. And you get a good sense of the way they see the world, their background, the way they approach tough problems, their grit, their hustle. Um, and you feel like this is someone who can really get through thick and thin. And I think the one way also someone can show that value that I give this advice is the idea of a manual MVP. A lot of products, a lot of software can optimize, make things faster, make things more integrated, but you could start a business with Squarespace, Zapier, a Google Sheets or Airtable, and literally running outside and doing something um, and Slack all kind of integrated together. Um, like you can make a business on a box with just some simple software glued together to prove the value. And I think the idea that you're solving a real problem and you're seeing the value the customers are getting from the solution you're providing is a really good indicator to an early stage investor, especially in the doom and gloom stage, where I think previously, especially when we were uh, investing a bit before doom and gloom is like with um, a really strong idea and approach, you could get some easy, you could get some investment. Now I have to show a little bit more of the value creation. And you can do that by showing the early stage MVP. And people often say, oh, I don't have an engineering team or any technical co-founder, or if they're technical, I'm not sure about the business economics of it. And I think the easiest way is to show the value. And I think I always just start with an manual MVP and do it really crude way. And then when you get funding and you use that to prove and say, hey, I did this, people liked it as a small sample size, but people really love what I'm trying to do then you can raise funding and actually expand the team. So I think that's been, especially for an early stage or even pre-seed founder, is that you wanna show value fast 
don't worry about getting it perfect. That's uh, a fool's errand at the early stage. Get something quick and, I don't say quick and dirty, but can cleanly show the value and the simplest way you can possibly do it. No, I think that's really good advice. And I think like, just to echo that point, like I discovered like bubble.io, the no code solution. It'd be like, yeah. a, well, it's not really like an Airtable, but Airtable would be a no code solution. Um, but that's changed my life for like astronomically, right? I think as somebody that can like kind of code, but isn't very good at it, being able to use like a no code solution to build an MVP in within like days or weeks or even like months has been game changing, right? And you can start for free on some of these no code platforms. So there's really no reason you can't build a, you know, a crude MVP with one of these very inexpensive or, you know, free just to gauge some interest, right? Absolutely, gauging interest. Some The harder exception is when you're trying to build literally software, um, like your startup is, you're selling software. If you think like, I'm trying to build Google Maps or build yeah. Netflix. Well, then you might think about building, getting a technical co-founder or yourself a technical and building and coding and building the MVP version. But besides strictly software systems, software solutions, Everything else you can MVP with Bubble.io and a lot of these software together. Interesting. So I'm curious to get your thoughts on how have you managed your internal project roadmap compared to customer feature requests? Because I think a lot of startups struggle with that. And while anybody really that's building anything kind of can struggle with that, no matter whether you're brand new or you have a ton of customers. I think uh, I always come back to an advice I got from one of our one of my advisors. Um, he said to me, uh, and I actually mentioned this to my my team literally today, was that you could either be an Uber driver or you could be a bus driver. And he explained what that meant to me was that when a passenger comes into Uber Uber drive Uber ride, he said, "Okay, where do you want to go?" And then you take them there. Now, how do you contact the bus driver? The bus driver is headed towards a destination, and he has specific stops along the way. And the person coming on will stop on the stops you say, or they get off the bus and like, this is the wrong bus for them. So it's whether you're in control or the customer completely dictates what you're supposed to do. And I think it comes back to is that you should have a clear vision and direction you want to go, but you can have direction. You can have things that along the way you're trying to learn and adapt and grow, but you have a clear sight of what you want to accomplish. The customer feedback, the things that they're saying should inform you whether maybe I should take a pit stop here or change, but really you should not be taking customer feedback and saying, today I'm I'm solving this problem. Oh, got customer feedback, I'm gonna pivot entirely, do this. Oh, I got a new feedback. I'm gonna now build this and go do this entirely new thing. It should inform the direction you wanna go, uh, but it shouldn't change your direction unless you fundamentally realize that you were on the wrong course to begin with. But also, a lot of the time, if you're living, breathing, thinking your your company, you have a strong idea of the overall direction and customer feedback just gives you the stops along the way. That's actually a really good way of putting it. I've never heard it explained like that, but I, I think that makes a ton of sense, right? And everybody can relate to that and understands that. Yeah, it's given me a lot of clarity is around that I can't be just going left and right because customer says I want this or that. We even get that from our own product is that, oh, we really want Cloak to do this or Cloak to do that. Like one feature we always get um, that I, I want to work on, it's just uh, something on, on our eventual roadmap is cloaked addresses, for example. Right. And 
we know that customers always ask for it, but we know that they say they want it, but I know if we launch it, they may not use it because if they get their package slower, no one will be happy. So I want to Yeah, know. interesting. <laughs> and so yeah. we want to take it on in a smart way where it doesn't actually cause inconvenience. So that'll take time, partnerships and conversations. So that way we haven't launched it yet. Um, but that's an example of one for us that people ask for and talk about a lot, but I we've said we'll we'll get to it when we, we can. That's interesting because that you're focusing that much on because that really just comes down to user experience, right? It's yeah. you're right. Like if I order something from Amazon and I want it delivered, you know, today or tomorrow, and it comes two days from now because of an app you're going to hear about it right and yeah and yeah yeah it's interesting and i think so many people forget about some of that stuff especially when there's the physical world that needs to be involved in logistics outside of the app's control oh absolutely that's for us it's user experience is the name of the game i know that we have to make cloaked easy and convenient and simple and if something we're building detracts from that Sometimes security adds a little bit of hurdles, but besides yeah. that, I think that it's we, we have to make sure that it doesn't violate that principle. Sure, that makes sense. So I'm curious because you support um, like Chrome, Android, iOS, the web, and obviously Google's a little bit more open with things. iOS is a little bit closed. How have you managed the user experience and the privacy stuff between all the different platforms you support, because that's gotta be very challenging in itself. Like, do you have any advice around that for others that are maybe building something across so many different spaces? I, for, so I've been technology for a while. So, and building things on different platforms has been kind of a muscle you, you develop as you uh, totally through it because the challenges with iOS, the, the many challenges, not just iOS has challenges. Android has a bunch of challenges. I would, uh, I'd have a. We can spend an hour talking about the the camera SDK on Android and what a complete disaster. <laughs> um, but it's, I think that's something that it becomes ultimately what 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 you're trying to do, and what you're trying to accomplish, will drive what you what how you build across any of these platforms. So, you set your purpose. If there's some challenges, in one of these platforms. Most of the time, there's a workaround. Um, even for us, there's a lot of limitations on iOS, but we can leverage the tools we have and take, use them in clever ways, like Apple's auto autofill. We're able to use it in a clever way to not just fill in things, but think about also creating. Um, Android is a little bit more flexibility, but in Android, there's also some challenges where when we're trying to do native things, they say, oh, there's no SDK, no tools. You have to build it entirely custom. And I think it becomes a, a decision you weigh about how much you want to invest in now, how much you want to invest in later. I think with Chrome and the web, because we, one decision I always tell everyone is like, do you want to be on multiple devices, multiple platforms? I would strongly sometimes for a lot of founders say, you don't, you don't want to do, especially for even what we were doing, be cross-platform, start with one platform, sharp there and expand from that point of view. When Cloak first started, it was just the browser extension and the backend. And then we expanded and built a crude web app um, so people could manage their identities. And then um, many months later, we eventually had a mobile app. Um, and it, 
a lot of times you want to defer some of those points and make it even years later your mobile app. We know from our product is important because there's a strong sense of fear when you don't have access to your information. Whether totally. you're you're in mobile, you're on the go, because a lot of time consumers, after 7 p.m., data always shows that you're on your phone way more than your computer. During the yeah. day, you're on your computer at work, there you that's where that's where you're living. And so we're a product that's consumer, we're B2C. So we have to kind of match the consumer behavior where they are. So it makes sense for us. Now we are native iOS Android. I say for people who are on MVP stage, think about things like React Native or hybrid apps. Definitely an easy way to go or progressive web apps. Um, from my perspective, we're doing things like encryption and doing a lot of security things, having granular control and native ecosystems is just a lot more helpful. Um, but I think from these challenges, there's always going to be them, but it's never a huge hurdle. It's something that you eventually find solutions around. Um, there's nothing that Apple, Android will do that will be a huge blocker. And even if Google's a bit more open, they have their own challenges. They have a lot sure. of challenges at being open. So I think it's, I often say, get uh, if you have a good, strong technical uh, team, co-founder, advice, mentorship, or if you've got the experience yourself, you'll be able to get through any of them. No, I think that's really good advice. Do you change the user experience a little bit depending on platform, just be, maybe because of some of those limitations that you talked about? Yeah, so I, I we haven't made too much of a delta, not too much from iOS versus Android, but absolutely right. different from um, our dashboard on the web versus our extension versus our mobile app. Right. I tell our team that every product has its own tempo and its own theme. Um, I think about, um, for example, our uh, mobile app, the tempo is fast. You're trying to get information where you're, you're trying, you're looking at something on Instagram or setting up for this new app. You want to give a cloaked information as quickly as possible. Um, and I think the idea of our uh, dashboard, you're, you're looking at your information, you're trying to find your um, either identity and email, the tempo is a bit slower. And our browser extension, I think the tempo is medium. You're browsing a website, you're in a sign up form. Um, you're actually right then that moment, uh, but you, it's not a gun to your head. I need to fill information. You have a little bit of breathing time. So keeping that in mind, you try to think about designing the experience so that it matches the way the consumer's thinking, what's the environment. Um, so I think, yeah, there's absolutely different experiences, the way we build our products, the mobile, I think we could get a little bit better about iOS versus Android. iOS and Android are, are very similar, but I think we have contrasting experiences entirely across the different verticals of mobile web and extension. No, I think that's really good advice. And like thinking about obviously mobile, like can use it one handed. Do I need to use one hand and then go to two hands and then back to one hand? Like if I'm holding on, like a, you know, one of the railings on a bus or something yeah, or the train, can I give my, can I use cloak one handed or do I need to use two hands? Right. Like, or, and then obviously in the mobile app, it's like, how much do I need to move my mouse around the screen between different steps, right? Like there's so many, so I'm, I'm happy that you said that because I think so many people sometimes try to focus. It needs to be the exact same everywhere. And sometimes that's true. And sometimes it's not true. And I'm, I'm happy that you gave that advice. Oh, absolutely. I think some big apps are learning from this too. Um, if you, I'm sure you know, notion, yeah. um, the notion mobile app was just a carbon copy of the notion desktop app and a carbon copy of the notion web app. And I think uh, in recent updates to the Notion mobile app, they're starting to make it feel like a different thing, yeah. not just copy everywhere. Totally. No, I, I think that's that's really good advice. 
but sadly we're kind of coming to the end of the show so is there any other advice or something else that you'd like to mention that we forgot to mention today about cloaked and then let's close the show with uh telling people where they can get more information about yourself and cloaked and any other links you want to mention yeah absolutely i want to appreciate the time today i think from talking about cloaks perspective my goal and my vision is my i hope to change the world and the way you as a person us as people interact with technology apps and our own information altogether. i'm not here to try to make a quick cash grab and go sell anywhere my i want to finally change how we view technology and interact uh digitally and i think for my my point the way cloaks has been built from the ground up is that by putting you control of your identity, we're able to then put you in control of your data. And ultimately, by putting you in control of your data, we can put you in control of the way things are personalized to you, how AI interacts with you, and ultimately how technology controls or manipulates and works with you can be all in, in your say. So I'm happy with the progress we're making cloaked. I'm excited for this year. We'll be getting out of beta and it'll be an exciting experience. Uh, yeah, I think that's, that's really it from uh, my perspective. Uh, and I think for just learning more about Cloaked, you can visit us on Cloaked, uh, www or just cloaked.app um, and join our wait list. We're now taking people off the wait list every day. Um, so before we had kind of a long wait list period and now we're taking people off daily. So please feel free to join our wait list and we'll get you off and expect later this year to, for us to get out of beta. Very cool. Well, I really appreciate you taking the time out of your day to be on the show and I look forward to keeping in touch with you and have a good rest of your day. Same here. Thanks so much. Thank you. Okay. Bye. Bye. Thanks for listening. Please visit our website at buildingthefutureshow.com to join the free community, sign up for our newsletter, or to sponsor the show. The music is done by Electric Mantra. You can check him out at electricmantra.com and keep building the future.